Thank you very much, Steve. It's a it's a real pleasure to to be able to talk to you a, a little bit uh, this afternoon. As you can see from the title of my talk, I'm going to talk about emerging and reemerging infectious diseases, which I call a perpetual challenge to global health, and I'll get into that in a second of why I mean that. I, I had prepared a talk for you all. I had, I'm told I have a half an hour, so Steve called me up about two and a half hours ago, and he said, I want you to cut your, your talk in half so you could allow 15 minutes for questions. So I'm going to buzz through a talk with you to allow you to figure out the questions that you're going to ask, because this is such an exciting field, I think, in general, certainly to me, that there are so many things that I think can generate uh, interesting questions uh, uh, and discussion uh, from so many different standpoints. So I'll just jump right into it right away. You know, Steve talks about training. By the way, Steve, I came in 68, not 80. <laughs> you said I came in 1980. That's all right. <laughs> Indeed. We came together. I figured, Steve, what, what are you doing? <laughs> anyway, the, the reason I bring that up, it's the only mistake you've ever seen him make. <laughs> is that uh, back then, I, when I was a medical intern um, and resident and senior resident at the New York Hospital, uh, I was trying to decide what I was going to do with myself, and I got very interested in the interface between infectious disease and the immune system. But what, what actually really happened, and this is the truth, is that even before I was in medical school, people were starting to get the inkling that infectious diseases were a thing of the past, and we were having some pretty impressive scholars like Iden Cockburn making statements that we can now look forward to a world free of infectious disease, concentrate on the uh, chronic diseases, concentrate on the arthritis, on heart disease, on cancer, or what have you. So when I left New York at the end of the 60s and early 70s to come down here, the Surgeon General actually made the statement that we can essentially forget about infectious diseases. Now, that really bespeaks something interesting about how we looked at the world then, because remember, that was pre-AIDS, but there were still literally millions of people each year dying from malaria, tuberculosis. So we were looking in our own borders, not at a global society the way we look now at the world globally. So you can imagine how I felt when I was leaving New York, getting on the New Jersey Turnpike to drive down to Bethesda to do, of all things, an infectious diseases fellowship. And the Surgeon General is saying that my subspecialty is essentially going out of fad. So uh, don't believe what Surgeon Generals tell you all the time. That's the first motto. So infectious diseases are really obviously very important. If you look at the data, you know, Elias was talking about look at the data. These data don't lie. 26% of the deaths in the world each year are due to infectious diseases. This is the modern 2007 vaccines antimicrobials. It is the second leading cause of death worldwide and the first leading cause of death among young people from birth to 49 and there's a thing called DALI's Disability Adjusted Life Years or Years of Illness and Death. It is overwhelmingly the leading cause of DALI's globally. Now, why is that? The reason is they're what we call matrix of infectious diseases, those that have been around for a while or that have now established themselves as the things you can expect each year. So what can we expect? It's really shameful that we expect it, but what can we expect? These kinds of numbers for respiratory diseases, skip AIDS for a moment, diarrhea, tuberculosis and malaria, 1.7 million deaths, 1.1 million deaths respectively. AIDS was once a new disease, but now it's an established disease, the leading cause of microbial death. But superimposed upon 
these 26% of 57 million deaths is what we call emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. And this is a slide that I, I, I show it, and Elias knows he's seen it, and Francis, because they've been at the hearings with me. I show it every time I get a chance in our budget hearings, and I did it this year. And they don't get bored with it because each year I can add one, two, and sometimes three new diseases. So there are different kinds of emerging diseases. There's a new disease, the major prototype of which, and I'll talk a minute or two about it, is HIV or SARS. There's re-emerging infections, namely an old infection, but appearing in a new form or a new place. Good example of that is Lyme disease, excuse me, is West Nile virus, which first was in Africa for centuries in the Middle East, and then in 1999 landed outside of New York City on Long Island, and now is endemic, essentially, in the United States. And then there's that other category of deliberately emerging diseases like the anthrax attacks. So I'm gonna whip through some of these, but before I do, this is the fundamental principle of emerging infectious diseases, is that microbes, as most of you, all of you know, have an extraordinary capability of persisting, emerging, and re-emerging, and that's inherent to their evolutionary capability of being able to replicate and mutate. And we crazy infectious disease people often talk about smart microbes. Well, obviously they're not smart. What they do is that they have extraordinary adaptability. That's due to their evolutionary capability of being able to replicate and mutate. Now, if we match our own ev evolutionary capabilities against them, they'll always win because we replicate every 18 years or so. So we're always behind on them. So what do we do? We do what science does is that we develop research technologies and public health measures. And there's this constant balance that goes on and will go on forever. And that's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. The prototype mother of all emerging infections is HIV AIDS. Starting with the first recognized cases in 1981, five gay men from Los Angeles with pneumocystis pneumonia, to the explosion now of historically, clearly among the top two or three of the most devastating infectious disease pandemics that civilization has ever confronted, with 40 million people now living with HIV, 60 million having been infected, 20 plus million having died, 2.9 million deaths, and 4.3 million new infections each year, which is really astounding when you think of a microbe that did not even exist just a few decades ago, the impact that it's had right now. This is a bar graph of the NIH research funding for HIV AIDS. And I want to make a point that I hope to leave you with, which complements a little bit about what Elias said, is that right here is the beginning of the epidemic, and then we've had this extraordinary growth until most recently where all the NIH budget has been flat, including the HIV AIDS budget. But the NIH has spent $33 billion since 1981-2 on HIV AIDS, which is now about 12%, 11 or 12% of the NIH budget. Now, we can argue in the question period whether that is appropriate or not, but what it has demonstrated, and we use this example all the time, that when you put investments into these things, you wind up getting results, and you can actually do it for any disease. 
This is a list of the FDA-approved drugs for HIV-AIDS. A couple of remarkable things about this feat. First of all, this is a fact that there are more approved effective drugs for HIV than the sum total of all antiviral drugs for all other viral diseases combined. That is not an accident. That is a marriage of science, public health need, and industrial investment. So when you ask, why don't we have the same thing for malaria, tuberculosis, or diarrheal diseases, it's not that we can't have it, is that sometimes the motivation, the science is there if you push the science. That's not anything that is unattainable. So there are a lot of things in government and the government relationship with industry, how you can get these things. The benefits of this are extraordinary. If you look at the survival benefits of AIDS treatment in the United States, three million years of life have been saved since 1996 when triple combination of what we call highly active antiretroviral therapy came about. Globally, when you look at the PEPFAR program, the President's Emergency Plan, which in most of our minds in science is, is, is the major legacy thing that we have to consider what's happened from government over the last eight years, six to eight years. The Global Fund and a number of philanthropies such that globally, we now have more than two million people on antiretroviral therapies. When the government, the administration, sent me to Africa a few years ago to start to build up the PEPFAR plan and make the, uh, the suggestions, if not the architecting, of how PEPFAR should go, there were about two or 3,000 people on therapy. There are now more than two million people in low and middle income countries. The problem is, that the numbers are not going to be able to keep up with the new infections because only 28% of the people who need it are getting it. And remember, there are 4.3 million new infections each year, which leads to prevention. And I don't have time to go through all of the different preventions, but there's a lot of controversy about what one needs to do globally and in individual countries, and I'd be happy to answer any provocative questions you might have about that because that is something that is uh, of considered. Now, a few years ago, I wrote a commentary in JAMA. Uh, I said the AIDS research model, implications for other infectious diseases of global health importance. You don't have to read it, but let me tell you what I said in it. I said that if we can do this with HIV, we can do it with any other disease of importance, including the few that I'm going to very briefly mention to you right now. And that is, for example, malaria in which the science of malaria literally lagged centuries behind the reality of malaria because malaria kills 1.3 million people a year, a child dies of malaria every 30 seconds, and yet we have not applied the science that the 20th and the 21st century has given to us. Why? Because of a lack of the right combination of went, that went into the brew that gave us the extraordinary response to HIV-AIDS. Again, we could spend a lot of time on that. Tuberculosis. Now, Elias was talking about the things you need. You need a government commitment. You need scientists who are there. You need good review. What do you need to jumpstart interest in an emerging or re-emerging infection? Tuberculosis, historically, interesting number. People get astounded by that. One third of the world's population is infected with TB. Two billion people. They're not sick with TB, but they're infected, which means at any given time, 
the particular microbe can be reactivated. You see that with HIV AIDS. There are 14 million active TB cases, 8.8 .8 million new infections, and there are, as I mentioned, 1.6 million deaths. Eight, a TB was going down in the United States until the mid-'80s when HIV essentially brought it up to the forefront. So we started now saying, well, gee, we haven't had a new drug for TB in 40 years. We haven't had a new vaccine for TB in 100 years. Maybe we should start applying the science of the 21st century to TB. But still, people didn't get interested in it. We had truly a re-emerging infection with this new extensively drug-resistant tuberculosis. Now, nobody had a clue of what XDR-TB was until the famous globe-trotting case of Tom Speaker, who went around the world. And, and it's this kind of thing that you got to love about how the public responds to threats. So this is a YouTube picture, if I've ever seen one. So nobody cared about it. And then all of a sudden, it was all over the newspapers. And everybody knows. You know, you have. Uh, Lindsay Lowen, you have uh, uh, Paris Hilton, and now you have XDR-TB. So what happened from that was a series of congressional hearings, which were sort of, in some respects, um, I wouldn't say tongue-in-cheek uh, enjoyable, but they helped out. Here's a typical picture of the many hearings that poor Julie Gerberding, who got blamed for something that was completely out of her control, uh, and here I was asked to talk about the scientific aspects. So I've known about TB for the last 25 years. No one ever asked me about TB. Then after this got into the newspapers, I spent the next three weeks talking to people about TB. And here's Julie and I at a very recent Senate Appropriations Committee. Elias was drooling when he heard that I was going to go down to the committee because he said, go, Tony. <laughs> and we did. And there's a law now that is going to percolate its way through to talk about funding for things like that. We don't want just funding for specific things. We want funding for all of NIH. But these are the things that we need to, to address. We have diagnostics that are insensitive and slow. We have drug regimens that are complex and lengthy. And we have vaccines that are not particularly effective. The, you know, I'm being a little bit facetious, but the point I want to bring out to you is that these things are all attainable scientifically. You just need the will the resources and the attention of the global public. I'm going to end on influenza, another important issue. Again, influenza kind of lulled us. There's re-emerging disease. Each year, we get influenza like clockwork. People don't pay attention to influenza, yet the burden is very high. Every once in a while, we can get a pandemic. We get it about three times a century. The, the real bad one was in 1918 the Spanish flu, which killed more than 50 million people. A less important one, but nonetheless, from a pandemic standpoint, still an issue, was seen in 1968. Again, people didn't pay any attention to it. So why do we have all of these things, where you have everything from the National Geographic to Foreign Affairs to Business Week talking about the threat of bird flu? What it is, it's what's going on in Southeast Asia and other countries, which is the H5N1 bird flu that has jumped species from a bird to a human, giving the threat of the horror of a pandemic. Even though this is still a threat, what it has done, it has initiated an interest in the fact that there are emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. So what we've done here at NIH 
And this is something that Elias and I decided just a couple of years ago that we were gonna make seasonal and pandemic flu inseparable so that instead of just being crisis responding, we would say we need to build up the kinds of resources that are necessary for a disease that has always been important. Now that the public has their attention on a concern for something that might not even happen. So when we only had a couple of drugs like Tamiflu, which actually doesn't work very well, we now have a pipeline of new drugs that even if we never use it for a pandemic, we'll use it for seasonal flu, which is actually a serious disease. In addition, we want to bring the vaccinology of influenza into the 21st century. Could you believe we've been making flu vaccines by growing it in eggs that requires buying millions of chickens, injecting it with influenza, letting it grow instead of the wonderful world of molecular biology, which can give you vaccines in almost unlimited amount. Only now, and the drug companies did not want to make the transition from eggs to anything else because there was no incentive. So the government had to step in and do it. And now we're all of a sudden transforming the field of vaccinology because of the threat of something that has not happened, but that people are paying attention to. So I'm gonna close with this slide so we can have some time for questions. I show it again, but I added the perpetual challenge here. So I spoke to you about the metaphor a few minutes ago of microbes and their capability of emerging and re-emerging essentially against our capability of using what we have, which is research, public health measures, and technological advances. What victory is, is a maintaining of that balance because we're not gonna ever be able to eliminate all the pathogenic microbes and for reasons that Francis knows better from his studies on the genome, no way of microbes ever gonna completely eliminate us. So if victory is a balance, the only way we can maintain that balance is the investment in biomedical research and public health that you heard about from Elias. So I'll stop there and I'll be happy to answer any questions. Thank you.